Amen. Come on, church. He's wonderful. Amen, church. We serve an awesome God. Welcome to New Life. I'm Nate. I'm one of the pastors on staff. We are in our ter- teaching series called Mountain Peaks, and uh, it's been uh, an incredible teaching series. We've been looking at biblical um, stories where God has shown up and meet, met with a man on a mountain. And in those, in those moments, incredible things have taken place and life changes has happened. And through this series, I bet you can reflect back and you can think back the moments where you've maybe been encouraged, maybe encouraged to walk with the Lord up, t- up the mountain that you've been facing and find victory in it. Maybe you've been challenged even in this series where we've all been challenged to even look at the mountain ahead of us and surrender it and to find victory and to find hope and to help and let God allow us to find uh, assurance that he is with us even in the middle of the mountain um, and where we're at. And so today we're going to continue in our teaching series. We're going to be uh, looking at the Mount of Olives. And Pastor Jeff in just a moment is going to be preaching and sharing out of that. But this is a moment where we see Jesus all throughout the New Testament. We see Jesus going again and again back to the Mount of Olives. And so today we can find truth um, for today and truth, the transforming truth for our future if we we'll allow God to speak to us today. So would you give a warm welcome to our lead pastor, Pastor Jeff, as he leads us on a biblical mountain tap trek. All right, everybody. Welcome. Glad to have you guys with us at New Life. We're just going to jump in. Are you ready just to jump in? All right. I'm just going to tell you, you're going to want something to take some notes on because we're going to be throwing a lot of stuff at you, but it's great stuff and it's a lot of stuff you can go back and you can read later. If you've got your version app, it will really, really help you. It will speed up the whole process for you. Today in this teaching series, Mountain Peaks, talking about the Mount of Olives. Now, if you don't know where the Mount of Olives is, I just need to let you know just so that we're all on the same page. If you're picturing this like Mount mountain peak in the Rockies, right, where it goes up and it's snow-capped. That's not what it is. Um, It's not a mountain as much as it is a mount. And it sits just to the east of Jerusalem. So if you've ever been to Israel before, you would know it kind of dominates over the city. Um, It's something that you can see very easy from the city. You can see it very easy from the temple ground as well. The highest point on the Mount of Olives is about 2,700 feet. Anybody ever climbed a mountain before? I've climbed many of them, right? Okay, so 2,700 feet is not really that high. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, that's why we call it a mount. Now, the Mount of Olives is something that we've mentioned in the Old Testament. You've got the Mount of Olives mentioned when King David, he's a famous king, and he's fleeing the city of Jerusalem because his, one of his sons is doing a hostile takeover. And so he's climbing the Mount of Olives as he's making his departure out of the city. You also see another king that's a famous king, Solomon. He's known as the wisest man to have ever lived. Um, not so wise all the time because he decides to put on the top of Mount of Olives, um, you know, some places of worship to false gods. Not, not a really good choice. From the Mount of Olives, as you look back to the west, you're looking at the city of Jerusalem. And from that advantage point, you can see the temple grounds, which, you know, for now has a, um, the dome of the rock that's on it. That's a gold domed rock. That is a, a, a mosque that sits there. That mosque happens to sit exactly where God instructed his people to build a temple. And then that temple got destroyed, uh, for a number of different reasons. And then you end up with a mosque that is built there. On those grounds, that's where Jesus, if he was at the temple in Jerusalem and he was teaching or he was preaching, he was on those grounds right near where that Dome of the Rock mosque is today. Now, 
So from the advantage point of the picture that you were just seeing from the Mount of Olives side, there's 150,000, is is estimated, 150,000 Jewish people are buried on that mountain because from an Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah, which from a Jewish perspective, the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior, the one who's coming to rescue them, he has not come from a Jewish perspective. From a Christian perspective, we know very clearly from Scripture, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has already come. He's already given his life on the cross. He already became our Savior, saving us from the penalty of our sin. From a Jewish perspective, they don't believe that Jesus is that Messiah. But an Old Testament prophecy says that the Messiah is going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And so 150,000 Jewish people are buried on the mount, believing that when the Messiah finally comes and he puts his feet on the mount, that they would be brought back to life supernaturally. Jesus, he spent a lot of time ministering actually on the Mount of Olives. And today we're going to join Jesus. We're actually going to go on a hike with Jesus through the Bible. Okay, so that's the journey today. It's a trek. It literally is a hike. And it's going to be for the, from the last week of Jesus' ministry. So the last week of Jesus' ministry, Jesus ends up on the Mount of Olives three different times. Each of these times are very significant. Each of them are game changers for your faith. I want to take you there. Let's go with Jesus on this last week as we trek up the mountain with Christ, the Mount of Olives. The first place you'd have to go um, where this all starts is Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. And it goes all the way through Matthew chapter 25 um, to verse 46. Now, in this large passage of scripture, Jesus, he preaches basically to his disciples. But before I can really kind of unfold to you what's in that passage, let's kind of jump ahead. Let's jump before that. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was on the temple grounds. He was at the temple and he was teaching. Jesus was there, he was teaching, he was driving home, you know, powerful, uh, powerful principles to the people. In fact, what he was really doing was he was really kind of bringing a harsh word to the religious leaders. And if you look in what, what's written in Matthew chapter 23, you see some very profound things that Jesus says to these religious leaders, trying to wake them up from their spiritual slumber and, and how wicked that they had become, all right? And so that's what Jesus is doing. Now, Jesus takes his disciples, and he leaves out of Jerusalem, heading to the east, towards the Mount of Olives, towards the east. He goes down into the Kidron Valley, and he starts climbing up now what it would be like the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And from that advantage point, like in the picture I showed you, you've got a great view of the city. And it's at that spot that Jesus looks back at the temple, and he looks back at the walls built with these ginormous stones. Like engineers today still have a hard time trying to figure out like how did the ancient you know, people, how did they even move those stones? Like it'd be hard for us to move those stones today to build the temple and to build the walls. But Jesus looked at him with his disciples and he says, not even one of those stones is going to be left standing on top of one another. It's all coming to the ground. It's all going to be destroyed one day. Well, you can imagine the type of questions maybe that put into the disciples' minds. Like when is this going to happen? That's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 24. Here's what happens next. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and he said this, they said this, um, they said this to him, tell us Jesus, like when will all of this happen? When will the stones of the temple come collapsing to the ground? When will the great walls around the city of Jerusalem come collapsing to the ground? What sign will signal your, your return at the end of the world? 
They're very intrigued, right? They're, they're kind of wanting to know, like, when is this kind of stuff going to happen? I mean, just like you and me. We would, we would be intrigued with that as well. And Jesus begins to answer them then in Matthew chapter 24, this big dissertation. Have you ever asked somebody like a question that you thought was just going to be a simple answer and then 30 minutes later you're still listening to them? All right, so that's what happens. That's what happens for the disciples. Like, Jesus, when is this going to happen? What are they expecting Jesus to say? December 31st, you know, 2018. That's not what they got, though. They got... Two, almost two full chapters of information, right? And here's, here's what Jesus starts it out with. He starts it out with this one statement. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. I'm just going to sum up everything that Jesus said in those next number of verses with this one statement. Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples, and he's trying to get across to us today. Don't let anyone, oh, and by the way, don't let anything mislead you. Then Jesus goes on, and he shares this entire passage. And how does he do it? He starts by telling them, hey, guys, look, you're going to hear of all kinds of wars. You're going to hear of rumors of wars. Nations are going to rise against nation. There's going to be severe hardship, famines, and earthquakes, and all kinds of crazy stuff happening all over the world, places you never even thought it would happen. He goes, you know what? You're, you're going to be persecuted. Every, all Christians are going to be persecuted. They're going to be hated. They're actually going to be killed. And he literally says, all over the world. Then he goes, many are going to turn from the faith. They're going to turn from the truth. Then he says, there are going to be many false prophets who are going to be doing miraculous signs and wonders, and they're going to be preaching their gospel, which is different than mine, and they will deceive many. Then he says, sin is going to run rampant, you know, throughout the world. And then he says, the hearts of people are going to grow cold towards each other. And then he says to them basically this, right? So don't, don't be misled. Don't let anyone and don't let anything mislead you. Then Jesus says to them, and by the way, at the end of all of this devastation, you need to know this. I'm going to return for my church. I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't given up on you. I'm returning from my church. It just happens to be that nobody's going to know the hour. No one knows the minute. No one will even know the day. But you can watch for the signs that I just gave you. Watch for those because as you watch for those, then you'll know the urgency of my return. Okay? Then Jesus gives another few examples. And then these illustrations that he gives, he's really wanting to drive home a couple of these extra, like, sub points, right, to this, this whole message. And one of the sub points was this my return is going to happen suddenly. So he tells a story. And he goes, Two guys are going to be working on the field. And then all of a sudden, like in the blink of an eye, snap of a finger, right, all of a sudden one's going to be gone and the other one's going to be left. Jesus said, I am coming back. I'm not joking around with you. I'm coming back, but when I do, you're not going to have any time to prepare for my coming back. It will happen suddenly. So he tells that story. Then he goes on to, to drive home another subpoint. And he says, here's what you need to do. You got to be ready all the time. To drive home the point, you got to be ready all the time. He gives four different illustrations to drive home the one point. How important do you think this next point I'm getting ready to tell you is when the teacher has to give you four illustrations to drive it home? It's important. Let's just, let's just say that, all right? It's very important when he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four different illustrations. So he starts out by saying this, be ready all the time. Don't be misled by anyone. Don't be misled by anything. And he says this, you never know when you're going to get robbed, do you? Like if you've ever been robbed, didn't you always down on the inside go, man, I wish I would have known that was happening. I would have prepared better for that. Because we, like, we've had stuff stolen from us. It's a bad feeling, isn't it? 
And Jesus was saying to them, guys, you never know when the robber's going to come, just like you're never going to know when I'm going to come. If you knew when the robber was going to come, you would be standing there and you'd be ready for him, wouldn't you? Like if you knew the robber was coming to your house at three o'clock in the morning, what would you do, guys? You'd be standing there. That's what you'd be doing. And right about like 2.59, just to let the robber know, you would go, again. You might not even move it. You might just go, right? So it's because it's fun to do that. Sounds a lot better when you have a microphone on, just by the way. So don't try it, right? Because it doesn't sound the same without a microphone. So Jesus was saying, I'm going to come. You're not going to know when I'm going to come, but I'm going to come right? Be ready. He's going, be ready all the time. Don't just like try to predict, oh, three o'clock, I'll get ready. Like I can get ready when I'm, you know, in my forties, or maybe I'll, I'll turn my life around and start getting ready when I'm in my fifties. Or, you know, I got a lot of time. My grandparents lived to 90. I'll get ready somewhere down the road someplace. No, Jesus says, you don't know when the end comes, your life or him coming back. Be ready all the time. That was just illustration number one. Illustration number two, he drives home and he says, look, you know how a worker works when, the, when their manager's around? Like, when the manager's standing there watching over their shoulder, don't you get more productivity out of the worker? If you're a manager in here, the answer to that is yes. yes. Right. Unless you jump in and do all the work for them. All right? Don't do that. All right? So if you're there, they get more work done. What happens when the manager leaves? What does the average worker do? Slacks off, Right? They don't, they don't do the job as hard. I mean, if you're a manager and you got somebody that you can leave for a week and the job gets done better, then that's somebody you got to promote. But for the average person, Jesus is saying, I know humanity. Humanity is this. When, when I'm gone, you're going to be tempted to do something at a lower standard than when I'm here. I'm telling you this. Work as if I'm always here. Live for me as if I'm always here. And church, that's a great reminder for us. Live for him whether you're working this week, whether you're at church on Sunday, or you're on vacation. Work for him as if he's always around us. And if that wasn't enough, then he takes two classic parables and he drives them home. The ten virgins. And he says five virgins were waiting for the groom, and it was at night, and they had oil in their lamp, and they had enough to burn all night, basically. And you know what? They got the prize. They got to spend eternity with the you know, with the groom. The other five, they they missed out because they didn't have enough oil. They didn't prepare. Like they didn't prepare. And I would just say this to you, that oil that he's trying to drive home is the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's going, be full of my spirit because you never know the day and the hour in which I will return. Stay intimately in love with me, right? Because I'm coming back in an hour in which you don't know. And if three illustrations wasn't enough, the fourth one came with a manager who had three workers and he gave each of them different sums of money. And he goes, I'm coming back and I want an account for the money that you spent. So the manager doesn't tell him when he's coming back. He doesn't say it's going to be 30 days. doesn't say it's going to be a week. He just leaves. And when he comes back at the surprise of the workers, two of them say, look, master, you gave us this amount of money. We doubled it for you. And the master was just blown away. Yes. Way to go. Man, you guys are amazing. Then the other joker says, oh, man, I know how shrewd you are with your money. I buried it in the ground. You know, here it is. It's back. I didn't lose any of it. And the master was like torqued at him and basically fired him and took his money and gave it to the other two guys who knew how to lead well. Jesus said, I'm the manager. You, you are the workers. And every one of you has resources. 
And you know what God's expecting? He's expecting you to take the resources he gave you and do something with them for the kingdom. Like he's expecting you to take the grace that he gave you and share it with others. He's expecting you to take the gifts that he gave you and to share it with others. The passion he gave you and to share it with others. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. So if we're hiking up the mountain with Jesus, let's stop and take a break with him, all right? We take a break with him during this moment. What would Jesus drive home for us? He would basically say this. Look, your life's not going to last forever. Are you ready? Are you ready? That's what he would say. Are you living? Are you living as if I'm walking beside you all the time? Are you managing what I gave you as if I'm there working alongside of you day after day? Are you ready for me to return at any moment? Even at this very second, are you ready? And that statement that Jesus would say to us today, are you ready, is being said to those who are far from God today. If you're far from God today, give your life to Christ right now. Don't even wait for the end of the service. An altar call, it will be given. We'll give you the opportunity. But you don't have to wait till the end. Commit your life to Jesus right now. But this are you ready is also for those who have grown dormant and cold in their life. Like those five virgins who let the oil burn out. Right? If that's where you're at, Jesus is saying these words to you. Are you ready for me to return? Is your life in the right place? Are you burning hot for me? And finally, for those who are fully committed, they're all in. Jesus is still saying, are you ready? Are you living your life as if I were to come back at any moment? See, we can't approach this return of Christ like we do in America, like our retirement. Our retirement in America, it's like we don't do anything in our 20s, nothing in our 30s, nothing in our 40s. We get to our 50s and all of a sudden we go, holy cow, you know, one of these days I'm not going to work. I better start chunking away money. And so we start chunking away money and we start trying to save to try to get to this place so that we can retire in the way that we want to. And we get this urgency at the end. Well, church, we don't have the option to get urgent at the end. We have to stay urgent about Christ today, maximize today, live our lives for him today, make the most of today so that the the world might know that Jesus is alive because Jesus is saying to the world, are you ready? That's the first stop on the mountain. But if we continue it, then we have to go to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. These are some classic areas of scripture, but let me just kind of tell you, let me build up to it, tell you again what's happening before this. So a couple days after this last passage of scripture that we read, Jesus is now walking toward Jerusalem. So he's walking from the east back to the west. And on his journey back there, he's getting ready to pass through a community, a village called Bethany. Bethany sat on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. In Bethany, that's where Jesus' friend Lazarus lived. And Lazarus was raised to life. So if you know that story, that's where it happened, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is getting ready to pass through there, and he sends his disciples to go and get this colt or this donkey. And he rides the donkey through there. And as he starts to go through the village, and he starts climbing up the rest of the Mount of Olives, and he starts to crest over the top of it, he sees the city of Jerusalem, he sees it. The people start celebrating. The people are cheering. Jesus is the king, right? He's come to set them free from the oppression of the Romans. He's going to be their physical king. This is going to be awesome. The people are waving the palm branches, Palm Sunday, waving the palm branches, and they're just shouting, and they're cheering. And I'm sure that that voice, that sound is echoing down into the valley, and possibly even into the city uh, of Jerusalem at that moment. But at the Bible says that Jesus is sorrowful. He's literally weeping while people are cheering because he recognizes he's riding into the very city of the people that are going to crucify him, reject him, and they're going to kill him. 
And so the Bible describes this moment. It says in Luke 19 that when they reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers, they began to shout and to sing. And as they walked along, praising God for what though? What were they praising God for? All the wonderful miracles that he had done. That's interesting. They're praising him for what he has done, not necessarily for who he is. And so if we stop our journey up the mountain and we sit down with Jesus again and we would look at this passage, one of the things that Jesus would drive home for us is this. Praise me for who I am, not for what I can do for you. A lot of Christians, especially in America but around the world, we have a vending machine Jesus theology. Yeah, that was a mouthful, but just follow me. We have a vending machine theology of Jesus. Like, the machine sits over in the corner. It's got our nice little treats or our nice little drink in it. And when we want it, we go to the machine. When we want it, we approach it because there's something we want from it. And when we get to the, the vending machine, we stick in our 50 cents. Or I wish it was 50 cents, right? My bad. We stick in our $3. Because we want that little candy bar, right? We stick it in, and, you know, it's like us like coming to Jesus, this vending machine theology. It's like we pray only when it's convenient for us to pray, or we do a good deed because we think if we do a good deed, Jesus will be impressed with that. And then we go to the vending machine, and we hit the button for the product that we want, the answer to the prayer we want, the blessing of our life that we want, and we expect it to pop out of the machine and walk away with it right then. Vending machine theology. Let me just tell you this. That cannot be farther from the truth. That's so far from the truth, church. The vending machine isn't Jesus. You're just going to use him when you want him to try to get out of him only what you need. No, man, we are here to worship him. We are here to praise him. His status, by the way, does not change in your life depending on whether you're walking in a moment of victory or a moment of suffering. And our praise isn't dependent on his timing for answering our prayer or not answering our prayer. Because I guarantee you every time God is wanting his will to be done. So our praise isn't dependent on whether God's doing what we want him to do today or he's not doing what we want him to do today. Our praise should remain consistent no matter what the circumstances are. That's what Jesus would stop on the mountain and say to us. Don't praise me for what I can do for you. Praise me just for who I am. I'm king of kings and lord of lords. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. This very temple grounds that I walk through, I will once again establish my throne on. That's who he is. Let's continue the journey with Jesus up the Mount of Olives. And you have to go to Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 41. I'm giving you all of that because I want you to go home and read it. All right? And I'm not going to read all those scriptures. But if I can just kind of, before, we will read these actually, but before I tell you what these are, let's just put it into context. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room having what we refer to as the Last Supper. He's breaking the bread with them. He's sharing the wine with them. And he's saying that this cup is my blood that I'll shed for you. And this bread is a representation of my broken body that was broken for you. It's one of the reasons why we partake of communion, you know, here at New Life. Um, And right after that moment, here's what happens. In Luke chapter 22, then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and he went as usual... That's, a, that's an interesting thing. Jesus often went to the Mount of Olives. He went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, 
pray, pray that you will not give into temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and he knelt down to pray. It was at this moment that Jesus kneels down to pray concerning the crucifixion and the suffering of the cross that's getting ready to come. Jesus is fully God. At New Life, we believe Jesus is fully God, but he was also fully man. And as fully man, he's getting, ready to, he's getting ready to discover some of the greatest pain he's ever felt in all of his life. In fact, his human body is getting ready to be put to death. And so what does Jesus pray to his father? Let me kind of paraphrase what he prays at this very intense moment on the Mount of Olives. He says basically this, Father, if there's another way for us to accomplish the same mission, then let's do it. But I am resolved to follow your plan no matter what the cost is. That one prayer revolutionizes Christianity and it's a game changer for us that call ourselves Christians because it challenges us to our very core. Will we be like Jesus? Will God's will win out in our life? Are we willing to follow God no matter what the cost is? See, that one prayer is a game changer for us. It changes everything. That one prayer on the mountain that day and and just to sum it all up, would be this, when the heat gets turned on in your life, are you willing to pay the cost, no matter what the cost is, to continue to follow God's will? To answer that question, maybe let me help illustrate it a little better. You ever watched marathon runners? You ever watch these people that run like, you know, what is it, 25 miles, 26 miles, whatever that big, long, full marathon is? Sometimes, man, they just can't keep it together. Like their body just starts breaking down. They have to dig deep within themselves, right? Because they have to overcome the will of their flesh. Their flesh wants to stop running, right? Like my flesh doesn't even want to start running. Their flesh... Amen. I, earlier in the sermon, I said, Jesus is coming back again. I got a bigger amen off of like, my body doesn't even want to run. Um, I hit a nerve, people. I hit a nerve. Right, but they they have to like overcome, like with their mind, with their mind, they have to overcome the will of their body because their body literally just wants to shut down on them. In 2015, it was a great example of a runner counting the cost and going, I've done all of this training, I've been in this thing for this long, I am finishing this race, I am going to follow what I was called to do. Why don't you take a look at this video about that? About 15,000 people are recovering tonight from the Austin Marathon and Half Marathon. The race is often emotional for the people who take part. But tonight, this woman who finished third showed incredible determination and grit. Only in the closing miles her body better down, but she is going to make it. A little more than 50 yards from the finish line of the Austin Marathon, it was obvious Yvonne Negetic was in trouble. 20 feet. She's gonna do it. The elite women's marathoner had been in the lead for most of the race, but somewhere between mile 23 and mile 26, her body gave out. For the last two kilometers, I don't remember. Finish line, I have no idea. But Ngetik kept going. Race volunteers brought out a wheelchair, but Ngetik wasn't having it. She was going to cross the finish line. And when she finally did, she still came in third with a time of three hours, four minutes. There she is, guys and girls, crossing that line! 
her thoughts. Oh, God, thank you. I cross with that place, you know. And when race director John Conley finally caught up to Ngetik, another emotional moment. You ran the bravest race and crawled the bravest crawl I have ever seen in my life. Thank you. You have earned much honor. And as to why she didn't quit. Running always, you have to keep going, going. You need to die running, you know. I just wondered to myself, what would, what would the church look like? Those who have put their faith in Christ, what would the church look like if it was full of people with the resolve of like that woman had towards running? We had that kind of resolve towards following God's, God's will no matter what the cost is. What would it look like? What, what couldn't we do? What could stop us? If we had the kind of resolve that said, no matter what the cost is, God, no matter how my soul feels, no matter how my flesh feels, I'm going to follow the leading of my spirit. I'm going to let my spirit overcome the will of my own body, and I'm going to accomplish what you've called me to do no matter what the cost is. What is possible with God when we live that way? All things are possible. All things are possible, church. That's what we've been called to do. That's what God's called us to. So if we stop with Jesus on the side of the mountain at this very moment, what would he say to us? He would say these simple words. God has given each of you a cross that only you can carry. He's given you a finish line. He's given you a race to run, and it's one that only you can carry. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus literally said those words to others. If any of you wants to be my father, you must turn from your selfish ways. Right? You, have to, you have to overcome your selfishness. Right? you got to follow your spirit, and you got to take your cross daily. Take it up and follow me. That's something that Jesus has called us to, and Jesus knows this good, good and well. I mean, Jesus picked up his cross, and he followed the will of the Father no matter what the cost was. That means he went and prayed by himself when no one else was there. Right? I mean, he, he suffered alone. He even eventually died alone. So for you, your cross, it's, it better, your cross better stir up passion in your life. And when you're passionate about the cross of Jesus Christ that he gave you, you just need to know not everybody's going to be as passionate as you are with that. That doesn't mean that they're wrong and you're right. It doesn't mean you're more spiritual and they're less spiritual. It's your cross. You should be passionate about your cross. So don't diss the other people that aren't as passionate about your thing that you're passionate about. Right? For you and me, we just need to keep moving towards the finish line and finish the race God's called us to finish. If you're carrying your cross, you better be urgent about your cross. Like, your cross is the most important cross. Your mission, it's the most important mission, but it's not more important than the mission of the person sitting next to you, by the way. So the person sitting next to you that's not as urgent about what you are, it doesn't make them your enemy. We're working together in the kingdom of God, right? So keep climbing the mountain God's called you to climb. Let's just keep in mind, your cross, it's just that. It's your cross. It's your mission, you better be passionate and you better be urgent about it. But it doesn't mean that you are better or more spiritual or your need is greater than all the other ones because we each have a cross and we've got to bear it and we've got to finish the race that God's called us to no matter what the cost is. Amen? Amen. Let me just wrap it up today with these two things. There's two more moments that Jesus is on the mountain. At his ascension and at the second coming. His ascension happens 40 days after his resurrection. He takes his disciples up onto the mountain. He speaks for them, 
to them just for the last couple of minutes. And then while they're watching him, he literally ascends straight into the heavens. Here's what the Bible says about it. Acts chapter 1. That as they strained the disciples, strained to see him, Jesus, rising into heaven, two uh, white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into the heavens? Right? Jesus was, has been taken from you into the heaven, into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you have seen him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which was a distance of about a half of a mile away from the city. This is a powerful, powerful moment of scripture. Not only was it powerful for them to watch Jesus ascend into heaven, but what it tells us is something that gives us a great assurance. It tells us this. Number one, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Number two, Jesus isn't dead in some tomb someplace with just a bunch of bones wrapped up in a, in a white cloth. That Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended back to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to come back in what we call the second coming of Christ. That's important. But at the second coming of Christ... The second coming of Christ, the Mount of Olives, is going to radically be transformed, physically transformed, just like you and me are going to be radically transformed. An Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, this is what he said about what's going to happen in the future when Jesus, our Messiah, comes back. He says, on that day, the feet of Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west, okay? Half of the mountain will move to the north, and the other half is going to move to the south. Profound. It's going to change just like you're going to change. Why is this scripture so important for you and me, though? Why? Let's finish right now with this. 1517. In the year 1517, the Turks, they, they, on a conquest, they took over Jerusalem, all right, and they started ruling from there in Jerusalem. Generals took over, the armies came in, besieged it, they, you know, ransacked it, they, they had the city, the city was theirs. And while they have the city in 1517, these rabbis start whispering into their ear, hey, just so you know, you aren't going to be in charge forever. We have a Messiah and he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to put his feet on that mount over there, the, the Mount of Olives. And then he's going to walk right down into the Kidron Valley and he's going to walk right into Jerusalem, right through this eastern gate. He's coming and he's a powerful leader and he's an he's a authoritative leader and he's a military leader. And when he comes, he's going to wipe you guys out. In 1517, the Turks said, oh yeah? That's not going to happen on our watch. So what they did is they started to brick up the eastern gate. And they bricked it up, and that's exactly the way it is to this day. And they were like, there's no future Jewish Messiah that's going to come walking in and take over the city while we're in charge. We're going to block that gate. You can never go through. Other gates, there's big wooden doors, right, uh, that you can go through. Or they're walk, you know, manned or whatever. But this one, they just blocked it all up. And then the Turks said this, we're going to put one up on top of that. We're going to bury a bunch of Muslims in front of the gate. That's what we're going to do. No Jewish holy man is ever going to come and walk through that cemetery of Muslims and then bombard us through this gate. It ain't happening on our watch. Well, look, I got bad news for the Turks, and I got great news for us. Jesus is the Messiah. He's already walked through that gate, and he's coming back again. And when his two feet hit on top of the mount, the Mount of Olives, that mountain's going to split to the north and to the south, and there ain't nothing that's going to keep that gate from keeping Jesus from walking right into the temple and being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nothing. 
Jesus will rule again as the King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth and in the heavens above. It's going to happen. You can take that one to the bank. It's going to take place. So what is the Mount of Olives declaring to us today? Simply this. Jesus is coming again with one big question mark. Are you ready? Are you ready? Worship team is going to be coming, and they're going to take a couple of songs, and they're just going to lead us. A challenge to you during this time that we call response to God is this. Are you ready? Get your heart ready with God. Not just on a brief moment. Let's go all in. Let's count the cost, and let's say, God, we're all in. Right? We're going to follow your will no matter what the cost is. We're going to finish the race even if we have to crawl across the finish line to accomplish God's will for our life. Are you ready? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you currently now are the king. We want you to be the king of our life. We want you to be the king, the supreme authority of our church. We're longing for the day that you come back again and your two feet hit that mountain. Lord, things are going to radically change after that moment. Lord, we want to be found as a people when that day comes. We want to be found as a people that are fully committed to you. We're all in with you, not just for what we can gain out of it, but for what we can give you. So we're all in to follow your will, God. We want to count the cost today, and we want to recognize that, Lord, following you, it's not easy. Following you is going to cost us something. It's going to take something from us, but what we gain is so much greater. So, Lord, we're going to follow you to the very end. No matter what the cost is, no matter what the cost is, God, we ask you to bless us. We ask you to pour out blessing upon us. But Lord, if you have a different plan, our resolve is to follow your your, your plan, no matter what the cost is. So today, Lord, would you just move throughout this auditorium and would you challenge this church today to be ready, to be ready to follow you be ready, that we're ready to follow you. We're ready right now. We're ready. We're, we're walking. We're following you now, this very moment, this very second. We're ready for your return. May you minister to every heart. Prepare us for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.